Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 103. I hope everybody had a fantastic Memorial Day weekend uh, over the weekend. Uh, Obviously, the unofficial start to summer for everybody. Uh, Hopefully, there is a return to a bit of normalcy for everybody I hope your drumming journeys are going well uh, right now. Um, We are starting to open back up the economy. Uh, Things are are starting to get a little bit more normal. The one thing that's still missing for all of us, I think, is live music. And hopefully it won't be very long. Hey, we've got a great interview for you today. Uh, I am going to be joined by a remarkable drummer, Billy Sullivan, uh, in just a moment. Billy is a lifelong drummer, a film scorer. Uh, He just has a great story. I know you're going to get a ton out of it. Uh, So we'll be welcoming him right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're about to be joined by Billy Sullivan. Uh, Billy has a very uh, interesting life story. Billy is a native of Long Island in New York, Um, He has been a lifelong drummer. He was very open and honest about what, you know, originally drew him to the drums. He said that, uh, to quote him, he was an angry kid and it was an instrument for him to get some of that aggression out. And 
He had a, a very um, interesting childhood, to say the least. And, um, you know, not to quote corporate speak too much, but when he moved to L.A., he essentially burned the boats uh, like the Vikings did. He got there. He was determined to make it. And a chance encounter with a young movie director at one of his gigs got him into scoring films and he has made uh, just an absolute wonderful career for him for himself uh, in the LA film world. But it's just such an inspirational story. I know you're going to get a ton out of it. Uh, just a, a super guy. Please help me welcome to the drum shuffle, Billy Sullivan. Hey, good afternoon, Billy. How are you, sir? Very good. Thank you. Awesome. So, um, how are things in LA during the global pandemic? Are you, are you functioning or? (laughs) Well, you know, you you don't really have a choice. There's some really good that comes out of this. If, if anyone's really looking to get something done, there's things you can get done while you're not allowed to go out and, you know, uh, participate or shall we say play with others? Yes. So yeah. I got, uh, I got really lucky. Uh, a, a colleague of mine had a friend who uh, directed, wrote and directed and shot a film. And that film was cut together and edited. And I was called and asked if I would score it. So I just yesterday wrapped on a movie. It's not a big movie. It's a 20 minute short. It's a really good film. But I just finished yesterday writing the music was about nine cues. So I spent a couple of weeks just sitting and writing this movie. And um, Jamie, that answers your question. I, I, it was perfect timing because I was handed something where I couldn't go anywhere anyway. Right, right, right. So, so you had no choice but to just hunker down and, <laughs> and get it done. Yeah, now, right? now, the truth be, if we were allowed to go out and socialize and go to parties and go to diners and restaurants. And if I was allowed to do those things, I would have probably been in and just sitting, sitting in my studio and focused on this movie anyway. Yeah, of course. Right. So, which I think, you know, I mean, I've been able to, this has been great for the podcast because nobody's touring mm-hmm. right now, you know? And mm-hmm. So I've been able to get everybody on the show here over the past mm-hmm. few weeks, which has been really cool. But um, mm-hmm. before I get too far ahead of myself, let's, let's follow our traditional, um, you know, path here on the drum shuffle. Tell all of our listeners, you know, your backstory. Um, it's my understanding that you're a New York native, um, but mm-hmm. how did you get into drumming to begin with? Well, that's you know, look. I don't want to bore any of your listeners. I'll get right to the very deepest and and most significant point to why I play. I didn't play because I went, oh wow, I think that's a cool instrument. I started to really learn because I was really I was really angry as a little kid, and it was the instrument of which I could express aggression. Right. It was a way that I could get out aggression from being so upset from the, the family up, upon which I've grown up in. So, you know, my father was an alcoholic, my mother was a rager, and here comes this little kid, you know, 10 years old, fifth grade, and he's just got to get something out. And the drums were just a great way to do that. 
because it was a physical instrument upon which I could bang on. Now, I couldn't articulate that and tell you at 10, but I can tell you that, that when I look back now on my, my history and growing up on Long Island, that was really the issue for me. Okay. Now, just so happened, like most drummers, and I'm sure a lot of drummers listening to this, there was a natural knack. There was a natural talent to do it. But the underneath, the emotional bed underneath who I was actually fueled me to really work hard, practice a lot of hours, which, of course, with that comes, you, you get really good. Anybody right. that puts time in gets really good. Yeah, of course. Now, you know, right now, obviously, you are a multi instrumentalist. You know, you you play a lot of different instruments, and and we'll certainly get right. into that as we you know talk about your career. Sure. But drums were first for you, correct? Not only were drums first, as as Steve Vai once said to me. You know, I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know who he is. He's a really good friend. We grew up together. We went to high school together. Satriani was a few years older, but Steve, myself, and Satriani, and a few other really, you know, I think good musicians graduated from our high school in Long Island. It was Car Place High School in the middle of Long Island. And this was, in the, you know, the, I graduated in 1980. Steve graduated in 78. But Steve said to me recently, we had dinner at his place a couple of months ago, and he said to me, you know, Bill, when I look back over my life and when I go all the way back to when we were kids, and this is true for me too, he said, you know, the guitar trumped everything. And I have to tell your listeners that when it came to the drums, they trumped everything. They trumped girlfriends, they trumped school, they trumped my parents, they trumped friends out on a Friday night partying, they trumped parties. Anything that I had going on as a kid growing up through school, through a normal regiment of grade school and high school and blah, 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 the drums were always first. Yeah. There was something about them that just absolutely rocked me to my core. And I couldn't, I mean, I'd play six, seven hours a day. My parents were going crazy. They're like, will you do something else? I just... I just love them. Yeah. And Jamie, I don't know what brings a person to that. I, 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 I can't, I know that for me, I was angry. So I, it was a way to express, express myself. And, you know, I was a bit socially um, awkward when I was really young. So it, it was a way that I could speak. Yeah. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, when I was a, you know, a beginning drummer at, you know, 12 or 13 years old. I mean, I, I can vividly remember like getting off the school bus after school and just dead sprint home so I could run down to the basement and get behind the drums, you know? So, I right. mean, I, I was right. kind of wired the same way. And, right. you know, I think for me, it was because it was what I was really good at, you know? I mean, it was something exactly. that, that that I felt like, I could contribute more so than I could to my little league team. You know, I mean, I was kind of right. a, a crappy right. athlete and, <laughs> you know, wasn't really right. good in school right. or whatever the case sure. may be. So, um, so yeah, I totally get where you're coming from now. Right. So you, so you understand yes. it was, it was a way, it was a way for me to get out my anxiety, 
it was a way for me to speak. It was a a way for me to, to identify myself. You know, my identity growing up through school, I mean, I was voted class musician, my whole identity, my whole existence went into that. The drums were my identity. It was something that I could attach myself to. I was really good at it. I could express myself. I I was very articulate as a young player. And I think what that did is that gave me a way that I could speak. And so I wasn't just floundering about trying to find my way. I had something that was my way. Right, right. Now, did and, you- and, and I can't, I can't impress upon your listeners any more than that, that if that, if you really, really love an instrument, it doesn't have to be the drums, it can be anything, but if you really, really love an instrument, it is a way for you to express yourself. Yeah, sure, of course. Did you... And that, so from, so for me, the, the drums with that. I got you. Now, did did you uh, pursue a formal education? Did you take lessons and, and, you know, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, And I'll say this as a drummer or a pianist or a violin or cello or any instrument that you play, guitar, basses, drums, as I said, here's the thing, your ear I'm sorry to say this, and I hate to bust the bubble of any of your listeners, but in my humble opinion, your ear will only carry you so far. You can only listen to enough, or, you know, Led Zeppelin records, Rolling Stones records, Queen records, jazz records, you know, Billy Bruford records. You can own, yes, albums if you're a prog guy, right? Your ear will only carry you to a point. You need formal education to further expand how you think. For example, when I was 14 years old, my, my parents paid for drum lessons. They also paid for piano lessons. But we'll set that aside for a minute. They paid for drum lessons. And this drummer used to play for a, an, an old artist. I don't even know if he's still alive. A guy named Tiny Tim. So I, Tiny Tim's drummer was my teacher. Okay. And he would teach me these Latin rhythms and he would teach me bossa novas and, you know, he would bring me to things that I would not have thought of listening to my Zeppelin albums in the basement of my house on Long Island. Do do you follow? Uh, Following. Yes, totally. The for the formal education. And then I went to school for music and I studied and then I went to graduate school. You know, you, you have to get your ear will only take you so far and how you could express an instrument has to come from a third party. Sometimes you get a drum teacher that you'll, they'll come in and sit down with you. And after four or five lessons, you go, this guy doesn't have what I want. This guy's not expressing what I, you know, you can tell. Yeah. Yeah. So let's short to your answer. Yes. I had a formal education and it was a really good one. The school district, I got really lucky the school district I went to had a great music program. I was studying college level theory by the time I was in ninth grade. And I was studying drums with professional drummers that were really, really good, but they were guys that were outside of my rock and roll wheelhouse. So I was able to get another, another expression, you know, another grammatic language, if you will. Sure. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you yeah. mentioned your rock and roll wheelhouse. Um, you know, I just 
to put a point on it, you know, who were some of those early influences? Were you a Bonham so, guy know, or? Yeah, I'm, I'm completely a, a John Bonham guy. Okay. Everything about how, everything about the, how that guy played, I absolutely dove into all the little intricacies of his hi-hat, the fat of his kick drum, his miking techniques, which were actually probably more Jimmy Page's miking techniques. But the way that guy approached his instrument was absolutely fantastic. He was like a lead singer with his drums. Yes. He was, he was, he was absolutely a lead vocal and an integral. Nobody would argue with me. He was a huge voice in that band. Yes. Charlie Watts was a fantastic influence of mine because he was smooth and he was grouped. The thing that Charlie had was he had great songs with a great band. Yeah. Right. Um, I love Roger Taylor from Queen. I love, so Stones, Queen, um, Aerosmith, The Who. I wasn't really a, lo- a big Keith Moon fan, only because he was even more aggressive than me. He was more <laughs> outlandish than me. I, I always used to think he put drum rolls where you didn't really need them. You know, he, he had a, a sloppiness and kind of a reckless abandon to his playing that I think was perfect for the who, but not, and I love the who's music and I love their songs. And, you know, I love Roger Daltrey's voice and, you know, Townsend, of course, is incredible. And, and he will, again, was the same kind of part of the who as John Bonham was for Led Zeppelin. But to me, there was just some overzealous playing that could have, he could have pulled back and kept some groove at times that, he had these monstrous roles with these really, you know, you know, he had a double kick and he had 18 <laughs> Tom Toms and Jamie, as you know, that was at a time when that was really kind of a thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. There were a lot of drummers that had, you know, Alan white from yes. had. Now he's an incredible drummer and very articulate, but so anyway, but my point is if you want to get to my roots, it's stones, Zepp, who wasn't ever really a Beatles fan, though I, I got into them later in life. But when I was young, at the age we're talking about, when I was developing my chops, it was all about Charlie Watts, John Bonham, and Stuart Copeland from The Police has a huge influence on me when I was a kid. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's a pretty good diet for a young drummer, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, I think, you know, but, but, but Bonham just moved me emotionally. He sat where I sat emotionally. Keith Richards one time said, you know, he's a little, he's a little heavy-handed for me, <laughs> though I appreciate his feeling. Yeah. And, you know... That said it all for me. When Keith Richards said that, I went, I absolutely could understand that. Now, he wasn't too heavy-handed for me, but I appreciated his feeling. I'm talking about Bonham. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, loved, I loved my life growing up on Long Island, and I loved the musicians I got to play with, which are some of the best, even to this day, some of the best in the world. And I, I, got, to, I got to cut my teeth with people that really loved and understood music with a school program that was absolutely phenomenal. It was second to none on Long Island. I was really lucky that I, I had that. Yeah. You know? 
Well, you know, and I know that you've been in L.A. for quite some time and, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to gloss anything over or skip too far ahead. But, you know, New York is a very rich musical landscape. Mm-hmm. You know, why the decision to to go west, you know, was was the rock scene, you know, what you were doing? Was it just not was New York too jazz for you? Why the decision well, to go I to had, L.A.? Um, well, I'll tell you. Okay, you just said it, but it's only part. You know, no one makes a big decision to leave Los Angeles and go to New York, or leave New York, go to Los Angeles, or leave Boston to go to Florida, or go from Florida. Nobody, nobody makes big decisions like that unless there's a culmination or, shall we say, at least a few reasons on the table. And what I gathered very quickly in New York is that the live music scene basically came to a screeching halt. So not a lot of people, maybe, I don't know the age range of your listeners, but in 1977, with the, with the outcome, with, when they came out with Saturday Night Fever, things turned into nightclub discotheques, things turned into DJs, dancing. There were wedding bands. And I just looked in the mirror and just went, put a bullet in my head now. Let's get this over with. Cause if I'm going to a fuck, if I'm going to fucking, you know, throw a backbeat into, you know, hurt it from the grapevine five nights a week, then yeah. we're just going to get a gun and we're going to get this over with. I knew that I was never, ever going to be able to do that. Here's a, something else I knew. I knew I was never going to top Tony Williams on the drums. I knew I was never going to be Chad Wackerman. I knew I was never going to be Dave, Dave Weckl. These guys are my idols when it comes, when it comes to chops. And I'm not talking about the music they played. I'm talking about their ability. And when I looked at them and I went, and that was a New York thing because you just said it, you, you nailed it, Jamie. It was, it was a, it, it was kind of a jazz thing. Right. You know, there were the black guys doing heroin on the Lower East Side, and they were, they were dark, and they were deep, and they were in it. And that was a scene, and that was a gr- beautiful scene, but it wasn't mine. Right. And I knew, I knew the angry white guy from Long Island was never going to get into New York City and hang with those guys. I didn't have their life's experience. I didn't play like them. It wasn't the style that I cut my teeth on. So New York had a a kind of an underground deep jazz thing going at the time that I was aware of because I used to go out and watch it. And then it had a discotheque Saturday night fever scene, but this live rock thing at the rock club was kind of over by 1982. Like it, like it was done. And so, but Los Angeles had a thriving live music scene yeah so to answer your question and anybody who wants to argue with me call me <laughs> you know they can get my number through you they can call me because i will tell them believe me i was there i was awake my eyes were open i was present and i was watching this very closely and in 1982 i said you know what it's a wedding band or i'm dead and there were recording studios, but there wasn't really an original music scene. It, there was, but it was like, you, you didn't make any money. It was, it, I saw, I saw it. 
I said, this, this is dead. This is a dead issue unless I want to, you know, work in a meat factory and play in, you know, play four nights a week in a wedding band. Like that, that would be the only way I could stay on Long Island. Now, Jamie, it isn't about my life. This is about the drums, but I'll just tell you about my life. There was some underlying circumstances as to why I had to get in a car and come out to California. And those were personal. They have to do with my family. They have to do with, you know, drugs and alcohol. They have to do with real life's, real life's experiences. There was more to just coming to LA for the music. I, though I came for the music and I came because the music scene was here, but there were, there were extenuating circumstances that drove me to a big decision. I got you. Yeah. It, but it, Jamie, yeah. but, but Jamie, it was the best decision I ever made in my life. You know, I mean, I, I think, and you know, I've talked to so countless musicians about, you know, right. why did you de- decide to end up in LA, Nashville, New York, right. Boston, you know, whatever the answer is, what, what made you do that? And I think they're all very similar stories, but I think maybe for you, in your case, it was just the timing because you're right. In the early 80s, you know, 82, 83, Mm -hmm. L.A. was just starting to to come into full bloom as a music mecca. It was phenomenal. You're absolutely right. It was just starting to come into full bloom. And the live club scene was fantastic. There's Madame Wong's West, Madame Wong's East, Club Lingerie, Cat and Fiddle, the Starwood down on Santa Monica Boulevard. There were rock houses. I mean, the Roxy, Rainbow, you know, it was the Whiskey A Go-Go. And those were just like the Sunset Strip Clubs, you know, the Central, which is now the Viper Room. Um, Anyway, yes, I I don't want to talk over you, but (laughs) yeah, it was... It was a phenomenal live music scene and original music. Now, again, you didn't make any money. You right. know, you had to have a day job, but it was, it was, um, it was, it was really good. I, what happened to me was I got, you know, the mother got on my back and said, you're not living here anymore. You can't. And, and I knew that I could not make it in New York. New York was really expensive. Manhattan, like we said, it was kind of an underground heroin jazz scene going on. I wasn't, I wasn't going to fit there. And my mother basically put her foot on my ass and shoved me right out the front door. So what I had, so I called Steve Vai and Steve was, had the gig with Frank Zappa. So Steve said, well, look, I got an apartment in West Hollywood. I got three friends living here. There's no bed but you get your shit, you get on a plane and you come out here. Don't worry. And these were his words. He said, Billy, I'll find a place for you. Now he didn't mean another place. He meant a place in his, in his apartment. Right. You know, he says, you know, I'll, I'll find a place for you. I didn't know his room. I knew one of his roommates. I didn't know the other two. And I came out and I slept on the floor in his bedroom on the floor in a sleeping bag for the two first two months that I lived here in California. Wow. I mean, that that's worthy of a book <laughs> in and of itself oh, <laughs> that you're, you know, that you're sleeping I, I on the floor jo- of Steve that? Vai. I mean, that's crazy. 
Oh, yeah, no. Well, we were really, really good friends. Our fathers knew each other. I knew his family. I knew his older brothers, older sisters. My older brothers and sisters were friends with his older brothers and sisters. And I was friends with his little sister who was in my grade. Again, Steve was two years older. But, but when he got that job with Frank, you know, it was not long after that. And he said, come on, come on out. Now, you know, I, was, I could only stay there for a couple of months. And then he, he ended up moving into a house he bought. And then me and a buddy of mine got an apartment together. Sure. But that was the start of me saying, okay, I'm in LA and I'm going to make this, I'm going to make this work. And, and Jamie, there was no, there was no Long Island to go back to. Like, right. I don't know about your other musician friends that are a little older and that have some life experience or not. And I don't know whether they could have gone back to their families, but I couldn't. I I had no choice but to make this work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think that's that's a common story, too. I mean, right. And not to paint it with too broad a brush, but, you know, I think some parents uh, of, you know, certain generations that feel that pursuing music as a career isn't an honorable profession. You know, I mean, because, right. you know, you've right. you've heard of all the you know, the substance abuse problems, which are, they're prevalent in the arts, not yeah. just music, yeah. but all arts. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, yeah. I mean, I think some parents are like, well, if you're going to do that, you, you know, you're on your own kind of thing. So, That's right. That's right. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. And by the way, my parents were scientists. You know, my dad was a cardiovascular surgeon. My mother was a registered nurse. This, this drum thing, it's like, what? What do you think you're doing with that? What do you mean, what am I doing with that? That's all that matters to me. My, my drums are all that matter to me. Yeah. But listen, take those down the street. That's a hobby, pal. You're going to school. Really? Yeah. So what school do you think I'm going to? Oh, no. You know, they wanted me to go to an engineering school, a technical school. I looked at my mother. I said, Mom, you ever see my math grades? <laughs> have you ever looked at my what, – what, what pipe dream do you have telling me I'm going to some – like, really? No. <laughs> But what they didn't see, Jamie, is what they didn't see was that my passion for this. I mean, I think I guess they could see it because I was downstairs playing eight hours a day. My passion for it meant the world to me. The drums were all that ever mattered. And I almost say that not with a badge of honor, but with a little bit of like embarrassment. The drums were all that ever mattered to me. And my parents couldn't see that. And you know what they were not going to do? They weren't going to support it. Right. We'll, we'll give you drum lessons, but let's be clear. This is a hobby. Yeah. 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 You, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, I think that's a, a common story. I mean, you know, my mother always yeah. told me, you know, drumming and music is great, but you got to go to school because, you know, you're, yeah. you got a yeah. one in a million shot of doing this for a living and right. you know it, right. how right she was, you know? Right. But right. you, you, it's the old saying, if you find something you love to do, you'll never work a day in your life. Right. I mean, that's right. That's right. So when you, and, and, and so, so that was my, but again, it comes back to John Bonham. It comes back to, you know, Stuart Copeland. It comes back to these men that I just endeared. They're in my heart. You know, I, I was walking, I'm on the board of directors of the American youth symphony. And I was going to an American youth symphony concert. And Stuart Copeland was walking about 10 feet in front of me. And I knew it was him. And he was 
going to the concert too. And we were walking down the sidewalk at a, outside Royce Hall at UCLA. And do you know, and dude, I'm 58 years old. All right. And this is a few years ago. Okay. So I'm in my early fifties and I was starstruck. <laughs> and did you know, I did not have the balls to go up and tap him on the shoulder and say hello. And yeah. I was, and I am on the board of directors of that orchestra he was coming to see. Yeah. And I couldn't say hello to him. I just sat there with my jaw open. Yeah. Well, because, I, I, it happens. Because he, went into, because he went into my heart when I was a kid and he never left. Yeah. I loved what he played. Yeah, man. He, and, you know, he's sort of in the in the same lane that you are these days. And, you know, again, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but when you got to L.A., you know, I, presumably you started playing in every conceivable, you know, yeah. situation yeah. you could find. Yeah. But I know that, you know, just from reading your bio, there was a a particular gig, you know, um, I, I, I think you had said that you were playing in a blues act and you had yeah. a chance encounter with somebody that changed your life. Tell us about that. Right. Okay. So I'm, you know, playing everywhere I could play and the bill collectors are sending the bills to my license plate. You know, I got like, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing blow partying, you know, Yahoo, 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 you know, like my life, you know, like every t crazy 22 year old, you know, 23, I think maybe I was 23 at the day. No, I was, tw I was 22. I was out here a couple of years already and I was playing in blues bars. I was in a couple of blues bands back then. Just for anybody that cares, if you were living in Los Angeles between 1982 and 1988-89, there was a very prevalent blues scene that was going on. It was all about Stevie Ray Vaughan. It was about, uh, you know, like these blues acts that were coming through, you know? Yeah. Dr. John, which I don't know if he's blues, he's more New Orleans, but it's, it's blues. And there were all the, you know, Slim Harpo and, and not that Slim Harpo was playing live, but there were all these acts that were playing Muddy Waters, Slim Harpo, Clarence Gatemouth Brown, these, all these kind of dark, deep Texas, Mississippi, Chicago blues guys, right? Okay. So I was in a band that was playing Fabulous Thunderbirds and Stevie Ray Vaughan and, and, and some of the older Muddy Waters stuff. And in the back of the blues bar, you know, we're all back drinking after the show, and this little skinny, scrawny kid with curly hair and glasses comes up, and he says to me, hey, man, can I get on your mailing list? And I said, mailing list? I said, yeah, we got a mailing list. Here, let me give you my license plate. Send me your address. <laughs> like, I had, there, there, was no, there was no house. There was no, there was no computer. There was no business. It was like, yeah, you know, read your address on a napkin, and if I don't use it to blow my nose later, <laughs> maybe I, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. yeah. Know, but here's what happened. He said something to me that got me. And this is when it changed. He said to me, you know, I just shot a little short, you know, 28 minute short film called Warped. And um, I'm going to, I'm going to fully the, the movie, you know, do you know a little recording studio? I'm like, and see, now, now the conversation went somewhere else.
right? because he was a director. Now, I'm a young kid. I mean, the two of us were born not even 30 days apart. In real life, we were both born in March of 62. And I looked at him, I said, really? And he said, yeah. I said, wow, I got a, I said, I got a little studio. He said, great, would you help me out? And I foleyed his entire first film for free. But what happened was, it was in that, first of all, I love the guy. He, he warmed up to me immediately as I did to him. We became instant friends. But it was after he mentioned that he was a director and that he had just shot a short film and that he wanted to foley it. Now, see, now I'm interested. Now, Jamie, up until that point, all I've ever done was play drums. But I knew that my musical life would go beyond that. And I knew it would go beyond that because my parents forced me to take piano lessons when I was a kid. And do you know why they did? This is their reason. Because children that play the piano develop better brains. It wasn't, it wasn't like we want you to play because we want you to have the experience musically. No, they just thought what they were doing was developing my, my hand-eye coordination, right? Yeah. So the, I was forced to take piano lessons. But I always knew, Jamie, that the piano lessons were going to go beyond the drums. I always knew that there was going to be a place that the piano would go, would take me out musically further. So anyway, that's how I met, that's how I met the director. It was a complete chance. And you know, I've scored every single one of his movies since. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I guess here is the big payoff to our conversation up to this point, you know, sure. um, while Billy Sullivan may not be a household name uh, amongst drummers and, you know, right. d dare I say you have not yet been on the cover of Modern Drummer or any of that right. stuff. Right. <laughs> you know, neither right. neither have I. Don't feel bad. But, <laughs> you know, um, you, you now have well over 150 album credits. You have sure. scored... Sure dozens and dozens of films, TV That's shows. Right. That's right. Your career went from playing in a blues club, you know, making your, you know, right. 30 bucks for that gig or whatever it right. was. Exactly. To meeting exactly. a young director and getting into Foley arts, right. you know, which right. for our listeners that don't understand what Foley is, it's basically the, the sound effects, um, you right. know, for, for movies. Um, right. So you sort of said, okay, I can keep doing these gigs as a drummer or I can expand and do something a little different here. And it led you down a completely different path that has been right. uber successful for you. Right. But for all the musicians listening to your podcast, here's the key. If you're a musician, really take in everything that that means. You know, the drums in some way get such a bad rap because it's like, oh, yeah, it's the dummy drummer. You know, like all the drummer jokes, yeah. you know, what's a drummer? Well, you know, uh, who's the guy that hangs out with the musicians? The drummer, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. you know, you've heard them all. Like we could go on all day with drummer jokes, right? Yes. But the truth is, the really, really, really good players, 
the guys that are articulate, the guys that can really play, the guys that can go beyond, the guys that can read really well, the guys that take private lessons and develop develop their ears, the guys that play another instrument. They're they're guys that are that are really smart. It's they're not dummy drummers. They're like guys that really can hold a conversation spiritually. They can hold a conversation mathematically. They can hold a conversation, uh, you know, organically in any in any subject that you choose. They're they're developed emotionally. You know, there's a lot to say for really really good. You know, talk meet and talk to a really really good drummer. They're really really smart. Yeah, and I think that. Listeners need to really wrap themselves around the idea that, yes, you can be more than a drummer. But here's the thing. For me, I kind of knew I had to be more than a drummer because you're right. I knew I wasn't getting on the cover of Modern Drummer magazine or Downbeat, though I would have loved to, probably qualified. But I was never in an act that was big enough that was going to sell that magazine. And there's the key. There and not to interrupt you, but there's no, interrupt. The, there's the key. We talk a lot on this show about the difference between being a sideman, being a member of a band, and that next step, taking control of your career and doing something completely different. And unfortunately right. for us drummers, the path has always been, you know you are going to be a hired gun touring with Madonna or Michael right. Jackson right. or right. or Beyonce. You're, you're, right. you're never going to be an equal member. You're always going to be right. just a hired gun. Or right. you can get lucky and be in a band that sells a whole lot of records, but you're still going to have, in most cases, a diminished role in the the way the business works because drummers don't write right. a lot of songs. So you don't get right. the, the publishing income. Right. But you can then do what somebody like you have done. And that is, I'm going to do something completely different. You know, I mean, I think of, um, you know, my good friend, Matt Chamberlain, who has probably uh-huh. 200 recording credits, but sure. he decided sure. I'm not just going to be a sideman. You know, I'll do those gigs but I'm going to start my own thing. I'm going to have a studio. That's right. I'm going to, that's right. you know, take part in millions of projects. Right. So I think that's the key thing to talk about. Well, and okay, so let's talk about it. First of all, if you're a drummer, great. You have to have a sense of time. You have to be able to play to a click. You've got to be able to read music. And it's sight unseen reading. It's not like, you know, the, the, the movie gigs I do, bro, it's not like, I'm sent the PDF and, the, and, and an MP3 the night before <laughs> and I get to get behind my drums and shred and get, you know, get its pocket, <laughs> set up a BPM and play to the click. No, it's, Hey man. Okay. You ready guys? Let's do the next cue. Yeah. And there's a guy walking in and dropping the music on your stand and you've got headphones <laughs> on and you got four free to the click. You got four free to the downbeat. And you better make something musical out of what's on that page. And you better make it right now. Oh, and by the way, you've never heard this cue. Right. Yeah. And those are the circumstances I get put up against. So I get a pair of headphones on and it's like, okay, you ready guys for free? It's like for free. Yeah. For free. You know what that means, right? Um, It's obviously Jamie, you know what it means. Yeah. So you got four clicks to be in time 
bar one, beat one, and you better be able to play it now. If something's really hard, really extraneous, then I'll say to the composer, hey, you know what? Just r- let, me, let me hear the mock-up. We'll just run this down once. I got I to gotta, I gotta hear. But a lot of time you don't have that luxury. So let's talk about going beyond just being a drummer. It's one that has to be able to be articulate and speak, but also be musical. And what I did is I followed, not to drop his name again, because I don't, I hate this name dropping crap, but Steve Vai showed me a path to success when we were very young. And what he did when I, when I was 20 years old and I moved out here and moved in with him, he bought a small house up in the San Fernando Valley. He built a recording studio in the back of that home, and that's where he lived. And his friends chipped in and paid the paid, chipped in on the mortgage, but he had a, a, a two rooms that he built that he was able to use as his studio where he recorded his first solo album. Yeah, and this is while he had the gig with Frank, right? Yep. So what I did in 1988 is I bought a small home in San Fernando Valley. And I built two gigantic rooms on the back of the property, which became my recording studio. Then I had the place to develop my skills. So I put a piano in, obviously my drums. Then I started buying little microphones. I had tape decks. I had, you know, I'd always recorded. I always had some recording gear, you know, and that's what I started to do to develop. So what I want to say to all your listeners, Jamie, is you got to go beyond just being a drummer. Yes. If what you want to do in the music business is write, perform, record, and have any kind of, any kind of, you know, substantial financial wealth, it requires being more than just playing drums. Unless, like you said, you end up in Led Zeppelin. You end up in Queen. Right. You know, the reason I never made the cover of cover of Modern Drummer magazine, and you either, Jamie, is not because we're not qualified as musicians. It's because we were never in the act that sold enough records that was going to help sell that magazine. True. Very true. And, you know, you're... your, your, your input there on, you know, the for free and you'd better be in and making something musical. You know, I, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but you know, another guy that does tons of scoring out there in LA is Bernie Dressel, who is a good friend Uh of the show. And, Uh you know, Bernie's like, he said the exact same thing. They hand you this music and sometimes it'll be like, okay, you need to hit 12 things at once. (laughs) And he's like, dude, I've only got four limbs that I can hit something with, you know? So Or it's it's at 180 BPM (laughs) and they want the 32nd note of the second beat of bar five and they want it right in that spot. Yeah. So it's... And they want a splash crash... (laughs) That's the thirty-second note of the second beat of bar five. Like, and you got you have seconds to figure that out. Yeah. Well, I mean, but my point in all of that is doing the the film thing is no walk in the park either. It's it's like going to war every time you get on the floor, right? I mean, it's yeah. you know, but you said a lot of really good stuff in there. And especially about having a recording space, because look, the first time I ever went into a recording studio, 
I had never seen a recording studio before. Right. And it was right. like, oh man, this isn't the same. And it takes a right. minute to get adjusted to that. So, right. you know, you work with others and, you know, you've gotten into producing, engineering, all of those things. I think those are excellent vocations for drummers to pick up as a secondary oh, yeah. way of doing things. Produce others, engineer sure. records, you know? Sure. Um, and and uh, listen, I've had to sit here in my studio and I was just, I own the studio and I had really nice mics, really nice gear. I built a, a cathedral ceiling in one of the rooms, so I had a big high ceiling, a lot of space. And But believe me, I've sat behind my board while there was some other drummer with with, with his band cutting a track and all I'm doing is engineering that album. And let me tell you, I'm coming away with wealth of information because this guy can play his ass off. Yeah. And this guy's in there burying a click with this beautiful music. And I'm going, Oh my God, I'm almost embarrassed to call myself a drummer. This guy's so good. (laughs) You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. Now here's the thing. He's packing up his drums He's leaving at the end of the night or the end of the day, all right? But here's the thing. That's all he does. Right. There's no gig, there's to, no gig after that. He, there's he is, no gig after that. Right. He's got his band. He's got his music. He plays his shit really well, really great. He buries a click. He's got good tone. He's a great drummer, but it stops right there. And you've still now, got hours and hours of work. Well, he's going, but, but he's going to the insurance company tomorrow morning right. for his paycheck. Yeah. Right. And I'm still sitting behind a mixing board saying, okay, on to the next band, on to the next album, on to the next movie or whatever, whatever gig I, whatever, whatever I'm doing. Let me just say this to your listeners. The, I stole the wood to build this when I was, I was 25 years old when I bought this house and I had no money, but the only reason I bought the house was to build the studio and I had to steal the wood. I borrowed $5,000. I took out a second mortgage and borrowed 5,000 for the building materials that I couldn't steal, which was like (laughs) the door and the windows and the drywall and the floor. Right. But, but the point is I had, I put everything I had in building the room for me to work. Yeah. It took me nine months to build the studio. I had the help of four friends, but here, but here's my point to your listeners. I put everything I had in it, everything. I was young and I was full of fire because there was nothing more I wanted to do than get behind those drums and make music. But I needed a place to do it. Steve Vai taught me that. If you don't have the room to do this, you're not going to make it. Yeah. Well, I I mean, and, Case in point, look, you know, I mean, I've I've had the the great honor and privilege in recording in some great studios in in my sure. career. It costs a lot of money to rent a studio, like yeah. y- y- you know, I mean, a thousand bucks a day, some a thousand dollars an right. hour. I mean, right. y- you know, right. I mean, you can get insane on recording budgets, right? Um, you know, so. With that being said, you know, I mean, I think having the space to do it is is absolutely a key. But right. this studio that you built, you're still in that same studio, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I, I so mean, I've, you've been there for... I've owned this house. Well, I've owned the house for 32 years. I built the studio the year I bought it. 
And I've been, yeah, you're right. And I've been here ever since. And I've never been able to leave because financially I've never been in a position to go, well, I, you know, I got an extra 400 K sitting aside. I'm going to go, but you know, let me, let me go buy a, buy a big piece of property down on some, in some commercial area, you know, right. and especially in Los Angeles, you're not touching anything for $400,000. Right. Get it. Right. So I've, so I've been able to, but I've re- remodeled and I've reconditioned and I've re-upped on the gear and, you know, you know, I've re- I've redone the property and, you know, so you, you do things that make it a more conducive environment for your, for your clients and, sure. and the big movies, I've, I've scored a ton of big movies in it and, and not only scored them, but some of the, some of the music that we've recorded on some of the bigger films that for other composers have been recorded recorded here as well yeah you know well and i know that you are not a fan of name dropping but i you know i'm gonna i'm gonna force you to basically (laughs) sure sure tell us some of the big films that that you are responsible for because when i look through this i was like oh wow everybody has heard this guy (laughs) well yeah i mean look there's there's i got what happened was I went back to school. So to, to really qualify that question, and again for your for your for your for your fan base, for your listeners, education is just it's just I hate to just be the the ass that's got to repeat this, but it's everything. <laughs> so when I was let's see, twenty five, I was about thirty two years old. This whoa whoa, like I started to get presented with the fact that I didn't really have the chops in composition that I really needed. So I went back to school and I went back to school for music, exclusively music and composition. And I got really good in that music school. I had a friend of mine that worked for David Newman. So that he's a big, he's a huge film composer. He's gigantic. So he worked for him and I said, wow, he says, you know, why don't you come out? I had asked him, I said, do you think he could use an intern? Do you think he can use someone? And he said, yeah, sure. So he said, let me ask him. Well, while I'm sitting there talking to my friend, the phone rings. And it's, it's Dave. And he's calling to talk to my friend. And so I'm sitting there right in front of him. And my friend says, so hey, listen, I got a buddy who wants to know if he could just come out and intern for, you know, just do 40 hours for free. He'll get some college credit if, you, if he does an internship. So Dave said to his employee at the time he says well if you know this guy if you like him and if you trust him have him come out let's see what we can get him to do so i went out and i gave dave newman 40 hours for free wow and after the 40 hours he wrote a letter of of, you know not recommendation but wrote a letter that i completed 40 40 hours so i could get three college credits as an intern but then dave said to me i'd like you to stay he says you know and, and he offered me, you know, a, a reasonable rate per hour. It was a nominal fee that he, but he offered me pay and offered me to stay. Do you know that I worked for him for three years before he put me on one of his movies? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to build that trust, that. right? I swept his garage. I moved bottles of wine out to his wine cellars. I took bottles of wine back from his wine cellars. I moved equipment into his storage. I installed gear. I uninstalled gear. I reinstalled gear. I swept swept the garage. I organized his cables. I vacuumed his floor. I mean, I did everything as faithful 
and as on time and as honest and as upfront and center as a human being could possibly be. And after three years of working for him, he said to my friend, his tech, he said, you know, why don't we try to get Billy to play on a movie? <laughs> and then my life changed. But it was three years of menial jobs in my, in my mid-30s yeah. to where he finally turned around and said, let's put... Then when he put me on a, on a movie, I buried the click. And when I buried the click, he just went, holy shit. That's, yeah. when, that's when he went out and bought me uh, an Apple, uh, a Mac Pro. He bought me a Mac Pro and said, I think you could start sound designing for me. Start, wow. start playing. Wow. And he literally bought me a brand new Mac Pro loaded to the gills with memory and the fastest computer you could buy at the time. He bought me a Mac Pro and said, you're, you're in, basically. That's amazing. I mean, but that came from burying a click. Yeah, and, and it was sight, and it was sight unseen. Yeah, and he went okay. So I, I want you know the drummers that that get to hear this or that hear this to really get to really understand that that a click. If you're going to play in film music, if you're going to develop past, you know, just being a, a drummer playing out, you know, doing your Friday Saturday nights or whatever, or playing live or, or playing in your original music band. If you're going to get beyond that, it, there's going to have to be the ability to read and really play to a click, you know. And look, I think I could play to a click. Vinnie Caliuti, he could play a little <laughs> bit in front of it. Right. He could play a little bit in back of it. He could play right on it. He could play with the sensation that he's pushing it faster or the sensation that he's pulling it back. These guys, man, they make me look like chump change. Him, Weckl, you know, Wackerman, they could take a click and, and do miracles with it. Yeah. They, you know, they're, they're in another, they're in another, I, I, I worship these guys that can play like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, but, it's, yeah, they, they, they don't see the click as a time dictator, merely a time reference. It's, it's amazing exactly. to me. It's you just know. a, it's just a, a pl- exact, you're exactly, that's exactly right, Jamie. They only see it as a, as a reference. And I, you know, I try to, I try to play like them. <laughs> I don't think I can, but, but nonetheless, so what if I think we're, if you want to take this interview into a direction, we can do it. And the direction it is in is that, to be really good and to take the drums and move to something beyond that, it requires the ambition. And my ambition, I knew I had the ambition when I built my own recording studio. And I'm not kidding you when I tell you I stole the wood. I used to jump over the fences at these construction sites <laughs> that were building these big apartment buildings. And I'd be throwing two by fours and boards over the fence and then hopping the, you know, I mean, I was crazy. But, but, Jimmy, I was crazy. Yeah. You know? But I built that studio. That was what was going to happen. Even yeah. if I got out of jail, that, that was going to happen. So that studio was going to happen, and then my drums happened, and then I, got a, then I went back to school, and then from that, Dave Newman happened, and then I started playing on Serenity, which is a huge film um, that Dave did. Um, what were some of the movies he put me on? Um, oh God, I can't even think of them, uh, but there was Serenity, there was Norbit, there was, um, I scored a film called We Love You, Mrs. Bevins, which actually was a really good film that came out. You know what I got to do? I got to look up my own credits. To, <laughs> to, 
I, I can't. Well, I can't, you know, I'll tell you what. I don't what, mean to be an ass. But no, 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 not at all. I mean, you, you do a lot of work. Some of the stuff that really stuck out to me was Curb Your Enthusiasm, one of the all-time most watched shows on HBO. I mean, yeah. I, you, you, do, you know, do you know how that happened? You know that that skinny kid with the curly hair and the glasses that came back backstage <laughs> in 1984 and asked me if I would follow his film? Yeah. He cut that show. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> so what? So what? So what? So what happened was he was and seriously he was the um, he was the editor uh, on the show. So he called me up and he goes, "Hey man," he goes, "Listen, you know the look of love?" I said, "Yeah, I know the look of love." He goes, "You need to replicate that." You can't rip it off. It has to be your own melody. And I need it tomorrow at noon. You got <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and you know, but you know, it's so funny, Jamie, for me, it was no pressure. I said, sure. I said, where am I going? He goes, come to Santa Monica, come to the editing base in Santa Monica tomorrow at noon. He goes, remember, it's the look of love, but it's got to sound like the look of love. It's got to be your own track. I said, great. So, I picked up the phone. I called a trumpet player. I said, grab your, your, grab your, your trumpet. Come on over. You know, I booked him that, that day. He came over to my studio. I already had the piano track laid out. I played a synth bass. I called a bass player. I said, I want to put a real bass on it. So in about five or six hours, I pulled together a team of guys. I got behind the drums with brushes and we cut the track. That's then amazing. I mixed it, then I put some, I put three different melodies on three different versions with the trumpet over the top, put a little bit of reverb, washed it out. It sounded like something right out of the early seventies. Right. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the song, the look of love. Yeah, well, sure. Of course. Okay. So, and then, and I drove it over there at noon the next day, I shook Larry David's hand. We sat down in the office, uh, Roger, Put it, put it, put it in the in the thing. Thread it up, queued it up. I had it right to time. It was cut perfectly to the to the scene where Roger wanted it. And Larry just looked over at me and went, "Good job." He says, "I think it's great." <laughs> That's so amazing. That's you fantastic. Know, so, um, so, but the more recent stuff that I've done, the fun stuff. All right. By the way, Larry David's hilarious, and that, that show's a lot of fun, and I've gotten other opportunities right for the show. And I did Grey's Anatomy. I did a bunch of mu- wrote a bunch of music for Grey's Anatomy, a show on HBO called Crashing. I wrote a bunch of music for that. Um, so anyway, but the ones that I played drums on that I think are really cool was Night School with, um, what's that, uh, that, uh, black comedian's name. What's what's his? It's um, I can't think of his name. Um, oh, Kevin Hart. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Right. All right. So I played played on I played on Night School and I played on um, Girls Trip. And what these are these these kind of black funk backbeat groove movies. You know, they're really sexy movies. They're really funny. You know, it's primarily a, a, a black cast. They're hilarious. They're, they're great stories. But the score, now I didn't score the films. David Newman was the composer. But the score were all these really funky, fat, backbeat grooves. And you kind of had to, you kind of had to put that soulful, soulful, feel into it you know it was yeah. a lot of like um 
like Sly and the Family Stone. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You you're just not, have to have that. Yeah, you're not going to use an orchestra on that type of film. Yeah. So. No, not really. And by the way, he's got orchestra in the more sentimental, the more melancholy. He's got, you know, beautiful orchestra cues that, you know, it's a, you've got to remember something. You're talking about a, a, a many, many, many million dollar budget film. So he's got to bring a real life to it. But the thread of the movie, or shall we say that the undercurrent of the film from cue to cue to cue, it's bass, drums, guitar, Hammond B3, and it's all backbeat. It's all a backbeat funk blue kind of thing. Yeah. yeah you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So um, another movie that Dave did like that was a movie called Naked. Um, so there's, there's, just, there's some of the credits, you know, there was a, a movie, the, a movie I did and actually mixed the score to, which was, uh, some kind of beautiful, which is a Pierce Brosnan film. Uh, I played a movie called five flights up, which was, um, Morgan Freeman yeah. and, uh, Diane Keaton. They made a, a beautiful film about living in New York as a, as a married, as a biracial married couple. And so I've been able to be lucky enough to be on these movies that have these very deep and reflective stories that are really about what life really is, you know, to, to be in, in to be in real life. They're beautiful. They're, you know, Dave's gotten such great film credits, you know, and, and then a lot of the movies I've scored have been movies about marriage and yeah. Well, and, and you know, I, I want to be respectful of your time, but one thing that I want to point out here, you know, most of us endeavor to write a great song with a band or with somebody sure. singing. And, you know, it's it, it, typically we draw from life experiences or, you know, observation sure. of life. Right. So right. In, in your world, sometimes you get lyrics. Most of the time you don't. And you're just told, mm -hmm. hey, I need this feeling. I need suspense or I need mm -hmm. sadness or I need happiness or I need excitement. And then you have to go back and figure out what that is. And I think Correct. That, I think that makes it a lot harder writing process. You know, for, for me, all the situations I've ever been in, it's OK, here's a riff. And then, you know, somebody puts a melody and words to that. And you hear mm -hmm. the story of the song, and then you know what you need mm -hmm. to play, right? Mm -hmm. Not not in your world, which I think is just, you know, it's testament to the musicianship and the education that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what else it's a testament to. You just said it a minute ago. It is life's experience. Like, for example, when Roger Nygaard came to me and said, would you score this film? And it was a film, one of his early movies. It was in the early 90s. He said, would you score this film? I knew that I was in over my head at that time. I'm not now, but I was in over my head. And I had to bring in some close friends and some people that were really good guitar players, a really good bass player. I had to bring in some other musicians that could bring some of the definite pitched instruments into the room. Now, I sat at my piano, and I helped some of that come out. But I certainly had a partnership with some other people, like you said, in, in a kind of a quote-unquote songwriting process. But here's what happens. I've never been a lyricist. I don't know about you, Jamie, but I'm not really – I can't, like, sit down. I can do it, but 
I'm not like a great lyricist. I'm not really articulate with words. I can speak them well, but I can't write them and have them rhyme and form and put them in cadence and then have them fit to me. It's just not my, it's just not my thing. I can't. Now I can write a song, but it's always the music or the melody part of the song. It's never really been the lyric right now as a film composer. The lyric is always the emotions that are that the character on the screen is feeling during his dialogue. So when I sit and watch a film, I watch it over and over and over again. And what I try to tap into is what does that character, that character, what is that character feeling? In this moment that they're leaving that room and screaming their head off at someone as they're walking down the street or out of a room into another, whatever, whatever the circumstances of the film. And my job is to tap into that emotional point and that becomes the lyric. Yeah. Now that I can do musically, but you said it a minute ago and I'll reiterate, it's life's experience. You have to have been married. You have to have a relationship. You have to know what it's like to be thrown out. You have to know what it's like to be in a band with guys. You have to sit down and you had to have played all the, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash albums to understand <laughs> that hippie feeling, right? right? Or, you know, or you've had to have played, you know, uh, whatever you know, black, the Motown sound, the Marvin Gaye, to really get that kind of black, soulful funk, you would have to have sat down and played your drums to Marvin Gaye. You know, it's life's experience in all these different facets of music that bring you to where you're able to have something to draw from. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You, do you know what I mean? I do. You have to have... You have to have had a kid. You had to have been divorced. You, you know, to understand the anger that someone on the screen might be feeling in the middle, an actor that's screaming at, at an ex-wife. If you're going to write the music that, that the director wants to suspense that, that scene, you almost have to have an understanding of maybe what that character is feeling. That is my lyric. Yeah. That's where I get to write, put my hands on my piano and articulate something that will support that, the emotion of what's ever happening on the screen. Yeah. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And, and, I, that, and I think that's brilliant. My friend. Yeah. But that is a long way from John Bonham. <laughs> yes, it is. See? Well, and there's nothing wrong with John Bonham. That's where, that's where we all start. Yeah. But if we're going to develop and survive in the music business, it, it, requires, it requires another thing. Does that, does that make sense? It does. It, it makes perfect it sense. It requires a, a, you know, I... I I wrote an article. Well, I didn't really write the article. I wrote the article, but Film and TV Monthly is featuring me next month in their magazine. And there's a big article that's coming out, and it's, it's about kind of what you've asked a little bit, Jamie. And I'd like to mention your podcast in the article if I can. Of course. That would be okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, We'd be I honored. think what you're doing, 
I think what you're doing with the with this podcast, and I think what you're doing with these questions, I think it's really, really a, a big deal. I think it's a really big thing that you're going to the drummers in the world and asking them how they were able to come about their lives. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, and it comes from a very pure and honest place in my, you know, childhood psyche. I thought to myself when the drum shuffle started, I, I don't care about what you played at two minutes and eight seconds. What was that fill? There's YouTube for that, right? right? I want to know what makes Billy tick. What has happened right. in his life to make him approach our chosen instrument the way he does? And I, I, right. I just think that's so insightful when we get to learn about artists such as yourself. And Billy, as we get ready to right. wrap up, one of the tra- yeah. traditions here on the Drum Shuffle, we always ask our guests for a good piece of advice. And you've offered a ton of great advice in this interview. Well, thanks. But, you know, over the course of your career, if there's one thing that you would impress on everyone as a piece of advice in their drumming and, and musical endeavors, what would it be? That um, the big, the big, the big factor that you've got to get rid of is the idea that you're not going to do something because you're afraid. It's okay to be afraid. It's not okay not to do it. So if you're afraid of asking for a big gig, that's okay. It's okay to be afraid, but ask for the big gig. If you're afraid to go back to school, it's okay. You can be afraid. You may may not think you got the chops of the time or the money. That's all right, but you do it anyway. Anything that you're confronted with musically, you need to do anyway. Even if you don't know how, even if you think you're a fraud, if you think you're a pain in the ass, it doesn't matter. You do it anyway. If you want to be a great drummer, it's, you know, Steve Vile tell you, my guitar, he's, he'll say this right to you. My guitar traps, my guitar chops only exist because I put in the time. I got more hours with this axe around my neck than any 28 people you know. And that's what it takes. I got more hours behind my drums than a lot of drummers I know. So that's the thing I would impress upon any listener you have. My parting word would be, if you want to be something great at any instrument or a composer or writer or or director or or a, a film guy, or you want to just be a great backbeat pocket drummer in a great band, do it. And even if you're afraid. Yeah, man, that's that's great advice, Billy. Hey, I want to thank you so much for your time and coming on the drum yeah. shuffle. We got to do it again. So anytime you've got something to update us on, open door here. You're welcome yes. on this program anytime. Yes. And, and, and Jamie, I can't, I can't th- again, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to call me and to ask me some questions. And I'm always here to share whatever you know, humble experience I have. I love the films I've done. I've loved the people I work with. I really appreciate you in this podcast and your ability to, to pull different drummers from different walks of life. You know, the truth about marriage is the documentary, actually, that, that the last documentary that I just scored. And that, that film's out now, and that's the film. That director is the guy that I met in that blues bar back in 1984 in Hollywood. 
Nice. That director today is the guy that put me in touch with you and said, I think I like this drum. He said, I listened to this drum podcast. I think you should talk to this guy. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. And that, and that, and that, that's how, that's how I found you. I found you from a director that listens to your podcast because he's a musical director. That blows my mind that I have a Hollywood director listening. You got to a Hollywood you. director <laughs> listening to you. He's listening to you. And he called me and said, dude, you got to you got to call this guy. That's you got to try to get in touch with this guy and see if he'll put you on the show because this this guy's interviewing guys of the likes of you and I thought I thought wow that's fantastic. So <laughs> that's nuts. Well, I'm yeah. I'm pleased to make the acquaintance and if there's something I can do to help let me know before we let you go give everybody the web address that you want them to have so that they can do some further digging. Well, sure. I mean, the, the web address I would give would be www.sullystone.com, S-U-L-L-Y-S-T-O-N-E.com, www.sullystone.com. That's my studio. It's my drum credits. It's my film credits. It's, um, it's a little bit about me. It's a way to get in touch with me. And, uh, but that's my, you know, you know who Sully Stone was? Sully Stone was the Ed Sullivan. His name, they called him Ed oh, Sully Stone. Yeah. The Ed Sullivan of the Flintstones. Yes, I remember that now. That's hilarious. Right. Remember, remember the Flintstones cartoon? Yes. So they used, they used to call him Ed Sully Stone. I remember that now. That is so <laughs> perfect. Uh, and my, well, my last name is Sullivan. You're you right. Know, Billy Sullivan. Yeah. So I decided I'd call it. I just, I just, I had to come up with a name for my publishing company one day and I, I picked that. That's, in high school, they used to call me Sully. That was a, a nickname I had when I was in school. So That's perfect. Well, Billy, thank <laughs> you right, again. Well, yeah, but that, there's, there's the web address, and uh, I'll be listening to more of your podcasts, and I'll send you. Could you do me a favor? Could you send me your email so I could get in touch with you directly? Absolutely. I'd be glad to. Okay. All right. All right. Billy, thanks so much. We will talk to you very, very soon, sir. All right. You got it, my man. Thank you. All righty. I'll talk to you soon. Yes, sir. All right. Bye-bye. All right, guys and girls, that is going to wrap up episode 103 of the Drum Shuffle. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We simply cannot do this show without each and every one of you tuning in week in and week out for this show. We sincerely thank you for doing so. Uh, I will remind you, as I do each and every week, hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen in. Uh, it helps us tremendously. Leave us a review. Give us a thumbs up, a star rating. Uh, whatever you can do to help spread the word about the drum shuffle helps us immensely, and we do appreciate it greatly. Uh, I, as always, we answer every single email that we receive here at the Drum Shuffle. It is the Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com is where you can reach us. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. Many thanks to Billy Sullivan for taking time out of his busy schedule to join us today. Next week, I am going to be joined by a super young drummer. Uh, who splits his time between Canada and L.A. I will be joined next week by John Foster. Everybody should know who he is. He's doing some killer stuff out there. Uh, a wonderful drummer and a wonderful content creator, so you're not going to want to miss that next week. Guys, 
Stay safe. Stay healthy. We are getting back to normal slowly but surely. Let's just keep doing what we've been doing and everything's going to be okay. I promise you that. Get in lots of good woodshed and practice time. And until next time, may your heads stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.